1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You're on Team Human, a safe space for sane approaches to contending with an insane situation. This is where we respond instead of react, where autonomy means not bearing down, but letting go. A break from the cacophony. A moving meditation on making meaning. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Today's guest, social epistemologist and author of Humanity 2.0, Professor
0: Stephen Fuller. One thing I would say about transhumanism is it's not a weird idea. It is an extrapolation of what, in fact, have been the dominant trends in the modern era.
1: Stephen will be arguing for the transhumanist future. Pedal to the metal, anyone? It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. One of the underlying premises of Team Human is that being human and, and biology itself is a social phenomenon. So I would argue that if humans are indeed the most evolved species, that's only because we've developed the most advanced ways of socializing. Nature is a highly cooperative enterprise And humans may just have the greatest capacity for working and playing together, even though these days it seems like we've lost many of those abilities. But this collaborative understanding of nature is really hard for a lot of people to accept. We've been conditioned to believe that evolution is somehow about competition and the survival of the fittest individual. And that's simply not true. If it's a competition at all, it's between different species, not individuals. And even then, the vast majority of mutations really just create more diversity within a species, which is to everyone's benefit. So a bird develops a beak, which lets it feed on some part of a plant that the other birds can't reach. Now we're told, oh, therefore that bird is now superior. It's won the battle. No, it's actually to everyone's Benefit Because now there's diversity in the population's diet, which reduces the strain on one particular food and leading to more food for all. And what of the plant? Well, the birds, much like bees, are actually helping the plant by spreading its seeds and then eating its fruit. So, survival of the fittest is really just a convenient way to justify the cutthroat ethos of our competitive marketplace or our political landscape or our culture. But it's a perspective that really misconstrues the theories of Darwin and and his successors. I think that viewing evolution through a strictly competitive lens makes us miss the bigger story of our own social development. And that's why we have trouble understanding humanity as one big interconnected team. You know, you look throughout nature, and the exception are evolutionary traits that lead to isolation and individuality, the rule are evolutionary traits that promote. Teamwork, whether it's the uh, acacia trees that have uh, uh, mushrooms and fungi under the ground that actually connect the trees. So uh, there are tall trees in the forest, it's tall acacias, and they Pass on their chlorophyll and, and photosynthesized nutrients, they pass it on to the evergreens that are stuck in the shade because the acacia are so much taller. And then when winter comes and the acacia lose their leaves, the evergreens then feed that stuff right back to these bigger trees, which now can't photosynthesize because they don't have leaves. Now, why do they do this? I mean, it's not that they love each other, but maybe they do. But they're cooperating. You know, the same in in uh, herds of wild cattle, where individualists in a herd of cattle they end up getting picked off by the lions, and those that stay together and and learn how to form social bonds with the others, those are the ones that survive. The same with people. What required human beings to get bigger brains than their primate predecessors was the need to socialize. We needed to have larger social groups and we needed more neural connections in order to do that. Once we had bigger social groups, well, then we could actually have these bigger heads, have these bigger brains, and women could have someone help them with childbirth. Uh, Tribes of people the larger the tribe, the more sophisticated their arrangements could be together. So developing the ability to work with peers is evolution. That's what the future of a species has always been, not strident individualism. So as I see it, now that we're developing technologies which allow us to in a sense, evolve consciously, whether it's, you know, eyeglasses or telephones or computers, they let human beings do things we couldn't do before. Our technologies really are fostering evolution to the extent that they connect us with one another, that they allow us to socialize. And they are anti-evolutionary and anti-human to the extent that they individualize us, that they alienate us and atomize us from, from one another. So when I'm talking to transhumanists and technologists who really believe that we're developing these technologies and we we have to keep, you know, uh, striving and accelerating to uh, increase our longevity or to let us speak multiple languages with the insertion of chips or give us super strength and all. Uh, Most of their ideas are about letting us live longer, do more, compete better, think faster. I'd say no that that's not actually human evolution that that's in some ways is the opposite it's decreasing our humanity to the extent that it's breaking up the party that it's desocializing our species and keeping us from being the thing that we actually are the things the team that we actually are so Listen to this interview with Steve Fuller, who is a uh, self-professed transhumanist and one of the speakers is one of the real voices, the more intelligent voices of the transhumanist movement. And, you know, he's opposed to what I'm saying and I'm opposed to what he's saying. But what allows this conversation to transcend your typical conversation with a transhumanist is that he's honest. He's honest and open. He admits where there's gaps in his reasoning and in his logic, just as I do in mine. We don't have complete arguments. This is why human beings engage with one another. So uh, please welcome Steve Fuller's ideas, even though they may come off initially as anti-human. He is one of us. He is wrestling with the same problems, even if he's coming up with solutions on the other side his honesty is his demonstration of what it really means to be on team human you're on team human if you want to stay on team human please consider supporting this show by going to patreon.com/teamhuman and subscribing to our weekly podcast if you subscribe, you get all sorts of cool free things. You can get books and comics, and you get access to the Team Human Slack, where we discuss these issues at greater depth, come up with ideas for guests and shows, and uh, we'll generally support one another in our efforts to stay human in an increasingly dehumanizing age. All right, so uh, there's, there's a couple of things I want. I mean, the first thing I really want is to get... Um, is to get smarter about transhumanism and and some of the the ethics involved with uh, evolving humanity forward and consciously. But I also want to look at how um, some of the uh, transhumanist ideals seem to just dovetail so conveniently with... Uh, kind of traditional corporate capitalism or neoliberalism, and how to prevent things from being externalized or from continuing to be externalized that that already are. Um, for listeners who aren't yet familiar with your work and the way that you've uh, helped clarify the landscape, I was hoping you could explain sort of humanity 2.1 and 2.0 and. How we, how we sort of move from one to the other and whether humanity 2.0 is actually a real thing, or is it just a kind of a placeholder for a whole lot of understandings of, of how we're going to
0: sort of evolve our species forward? The first thing I think that, so I make a distinction between humanity 1.0 and a humanity 2.0 and 2.0 is a kind of open category. You might say it's kind of the world that we're entering into now. So all of this stuff, whether we're talking about transhumanism or posthumanism, which I take to be somewhat different and I'll explain in a minute, these are kind of, you might say, projected futures, maybe even utopias of a sort. Um, They don't really correspond. We're still in Humanity 1.0 for the most part, I would say. Now, what this Humanity 1.0 is, I guess the easiest way to capture it is basically what the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations attempts to protect. And it's interesting that that document, which I think most people are familiar with, and it is kind of the benchmark for uh, what it is to be treated as a human being, only dates to 1948, okay? So there's always been this kind um, of—even with Humanity 1.0, it's been kind of an open question, what exactly are we talking about when we say the human— I mean, the first thing I would say about that is that human is primarily a normative category. In other words, it is a kind of value that you place on a being, which then entitles them to all these rights that we call human rights. So the question is, what kind of a being are we talking about? Well, starting in the, um, I would say, mid-18th century, we started to think that Homo sapiens the biological species Homo sapiens, all of them, not just a few, actually were entitled to be treated in this manner as human beings. We associate this with the Enlightenment and with a lot of progressive thinking in the modern era and so forth. And so we start to get this project which uh, becomes basically realized in the fullest extent in the middle of the 20th century about humanity that human beings are entitled to be treated with dignity they're entitled to have adequate health education welfare you know the sort of rights that are normally inscribed in kind of welfare state policies and things of that kind and so that you know now one could even go further and I won't say much about this here unless you ask but but these ideas that all all homo sapiens ought to be uh, be given this kind of high value status ultimately has a theological background to it about the specialness of human beings in the cosmos. Maybe right. we'll, And maybe we'll return to that when we talk about transhumanism. Right. But the point is, at this stage, where we are now in the beginning of the 21st century, there's a kind of fork in the road. Because on the one hand, human beings have obviously done a lot. They have done a lot to raise themselves and to transform the planet. But as you have already been suggesting, not necessarily for the better. When we talk about this geological era as being the Anthropocene, right, where human beings are in fact the primary cause of climate change and all the other sort of global conditions taking place, that's not necessarily meant as a compliment. Right. Right. So, so there's a set, you know, so, so one of the things where we are now is that there is a general acknowledgement across the board that human beings definitely make a big difference. question is whether it's positive or negative. And right. here, I think, is where you get the fork in the road because the question is going to be whether, whether Humanity 2.0 is a kind of amplified, expedited version of Humanity 1.0, which is what the transhumanists say, or is it in some way going to pull back from this kind of overriding, overweening, overarching notion of the human, uh, which is what post-humanism is about. I mean, I identify post-humanism with this view that human beings, uh, as it were, are valuable, but only valuable as one among many species. You know, in other words, a much more egalitarian approach to right. our place in the cosmos. Whereas transhumanism wants to actually amplify the difference between us and the rest of nature. Okay, so, so that's kind of what the fork in the road is with regard uh, to humanity 2.0. And we could either go the transhuman way, full speed ahead, or we go the post-human way where we pull back to a large extent.
1: So you see the transhumanist is more, uh, well, I guess, based in, in Christian ideals and Enlightenment ideals sort of all coming together as yes. the man, you know, almost like the, the Vitruvian man reaching the, the
0: greatest heights. Yes. and We're creating yeah. the image and likeness of God. Yes. That's basically and what it boils down
1: And that's in some ways what Stuart Brand argues, you know, we have the power of gods, we may as well start acting like
0: that. That's it. No, no, it's, it's it's a very straight line as far as I can see historically. You know, so in other words, transhumanism, one thing I would say about transhumanism is it's not a weird idea. It is an extrapolation of what in fact have been the dominant trends in the modern era, including very basic stuff like the idea that medicine is about keeping people alive longer. If you carry that on to its logical conclusion, you end up with Aubrey de Grey. I mean, uh, right. right? And the point is that that is a modern idea. Medicine wasn't, wasn't always thought of that way. In the ancient times, medicine was about coming to terms with life and death as part of a natural cycle. But now we see death as the enemy, right? And, and, and that's right. taken for granted by modern medicine even before you get to transhumanism.
1: Right, that death is this bad thing. Yeah, You would have thought that Christians would think that death is a cool thing because you get to go to heaven and be with God and do
0: do all all that stuff. stuff. Well, see, this is, of course, this is why (laughs) it's not quite a straight line between Christianity and transhumanism because there's a sense in which, um, whereas Christianity still relies on the concept of grace and God as ultimately being transcendent, right, uh, there's a sense, as you were just pointing out, that the transhumanists, as it were, uh, they appropriate the powers of God to themselves, Right so, in other words they don't need, they don't need the transcendent God, they are going to turn themselves into God, and so what happens then is all these Christian promises, which were typically cashed out in the spiritual or supernatural realm, are being cashed out in the material realm, namely living forever rather than becoming an immortal spirit
1: right and then where do like the the Gnostic tradition. So there are these folks like, say, the, the Russian Orthodox, yes. or the the Cosmists, or the, the Gnostics here, the New Agers, the idea is that you're getting out of the body altogether. Yes. So it, what
0: is that? Well, no, see, that, you might say, is a very interesting kind of halfway house. Between uh, being a pure kind of spiritual Christian that'll leave it up to God whether we, you know, are immortal or not, uh, versus uh, you know people like Aubrey de Grey who want to basically keep alive the biological body forever. Yes, there's this kind of in-between state, and I would include, you know, like you say, the cosmists from the Russian Orthodox tradition, but also Ray Kurzweil, you know, and all these guys who are into uploading their consciousness into machines. Right? That's a kind of, you know, a sort of second birth uh, kind of idea, resurrection, uh, and um, yes, the Gnostic tradition uh, is, is, in fact, uh, which was always regarded as a heresy within Christianity, is basically uh, along those lines. So there is continuity, and that's, that's been recognized, by the way, for a long time. You may know the journalist from California, uh, Eric Davis, who wrote the right. book Technosis over 20 years ago now. He was on mm-hmm. top of this early on, and it's very much part of that way of thinking. So then... You distinguish all this though from the posthuman category. That's right. And
1: then what's posthumanism?
0: Well, posthumanism is basically a decentering of the human as the locus of value in the universe, right? So so in other words, it's not that the human is worthless, but it's not superior. It is just you know so for example when biologists talk a lot about biodiversity as being good, one of the implications of that idea is it's better to have more species living on the planet than fewer species. Right. Now, the, now, the way human beings have been conducting themselves over the last two, three hundred years has been basically to eliminate most of the species, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. as, if, as if we, as a species, have more value than all these other species that are there. Um, and so posthumanism wants to balance out the ledger, right? Basically, so it it's, tends to support things like biodiversity, It's, uh, you know, it it supports ideas like uh, uh, sustainability in the environment. It supports uh, Uh, what permaculture say. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, something, uh, you know, in the um, in policy circles, there is this idea called the precautionary principle, which is a principle that's invoked about. Under what terms can you introduce innovation? So, for example, like genetically modified organisms and things like that. And the idea is that you don't introduce anything unless you can be almost absolutely sure that it isn't going to cause more harm than good. Okay? So it's, right. a, you know, so it, and it, it, the way I look at it, it's a bit like a sort of Hippocratic Oath for the planet, right? Where, you know, the, 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 the primary imperative of the doctor is to do no harm, right? Doing no harm is more important than doing good because you know if the two go together it may be the ha- that the harm outweighs the good and i think that's kind of the way you got to look at the posthumanists where they're coming at this
1: well aren't they almost amish
0: well then they're not that you know <laughs> that that extreme uh, at least they need not be that extreme i mean i actually do think that you have a, there, there's a, you know, if you talk about animal rights people, if you talk about, you know, most environmentalists, I would say, and, um, that, that there is a very strong strain of this kind of thinking, post-humanism, right? I mean, I, I think one shouldn't, you know, I, I'm not sure where, where your audience is on, on, on this uh, in terms of where they are ideologically, but I think you shouldn't underestimate the extent to which transhumanism is really seen as scary and vile you know, if we were doing a, a survey of, you know, which vision of humanity 2.0 do you feel more comfortable with, the transhumanist or the post-humanist, my guess would be most people would, there'd be more people saying posthumanist. Yeah. And well, which are you more comfortable with? Transhumanist. Really? Yeah. I, I believe in risk-taking and it, because I do think that in a sense, that is kind of what defines us as beings. So there's a sense in which, um, you know, we're the guys with the deep pockets in the casino of the cosmos, you know. Uh, and so I think, yeah, I'm one of these people who at the end of the day will say, well, maybe we're just going to go out in a blaze of glory. But I do think, <laughs> I do think that, we, uh, that, that this is kind of who we are, because I do think what's at stake here is what it means to be a human being and just where does the value get placed on being a human being. And I think it's more than just being another animal who can live, live comfortably with other animals. Yeah, but but
1: even if even if we think we're the most important and we're the center of things, we're learning really quickly that we are the center of a very complicated network of biologies that we don't fully understand and that we eliminate other species, you know, much to our our detriment.
0: That's no, you I agree with you. I'm not saying that we have to you know, continue in the way we have exactly. And and I am a big believer that we should be learning from our mistakes, okay? But the whole point about learning from mistakes is to be able to actually go forward with what we think is valuable in a more intelligent manner. It isn't to, as it were, give up our projects altogether, uh, and, and so that's why I'm always a little concerned when people tend to draw very radical kind of precautionary conclusions from from the admitted facts, which is, as you say, that we've, in fact, done very horrible things to the environment and other species.
1: Well, it's a matter of wanting to do things consciously, like when uh, you and I were at the IBM event, and they were relinquishing all responsibility for the application of their tools. Yeah, that's and bad. I forgot if it was you or me who said, well, what about the last time you did that, you know, <laughs> IBM and the Holocaust?
0: No, no, I, look, I agree with you, okay? I, I do think that one needs to be responsible. That's right, I, 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 100%. But I don't think one should be acting from a state of fear. That's all I'm saying.
1: Right. I mean, it's hard not to be afraid when you hear the rhetoric of a guy like Kurzweil, who's not a good representative of the transhumanist movement, as you put it, yes. because he's basically arguing... You know, let's just shed these awful little suits of humanity and I know upload it's... to the silicon wafer.
0: I, I No, no, look, I, I know. Uh, I understand. And, and it's a little unfortunate. This guy is what, the chief scientist at Google or something now? Yeah. Well, you know, I understand that. But I think one just has to deal with guys like him with, you know, a fairly calm... Kind of manner, you know, namely separate the wheat from the chaff of what he's saying. That's basically how I approach it. So, in other words, I don't believe, for example, his predictions that, you know, by 2040 or 2050 we'll be able to upload consciousness or reach the singularity or whatever. I don't believe in the timetable, but I do think what he's identifying is a direction of travel. In other words, I do, I, there is enormous amount of money, enormous amount of interest, and there might even be some overarching value to thinking about the extent to which human beings. Could shapeshift basically uh, move from one medium to another medium with consciousness or you know whatever you want to call the thought substratum intact? I mm-hmm. think there's a that's a very interesting, very important project. I don't think it'll be completed you know by 2040 or 2050, but it is a serious thing and it's worth doing. And I think the direction of travel is to try to figure out how to do it. So in that respect, I do support the project. It's just that so
1: much of the, sh- of the funding of human shape-shifting is towards really instrumentalizing or accelerating industrial age values rather than whatever a, a truer, deeper, more positive, less destructive set of human values might be. So I think the reason why people like me get so concerned with pedal-to-the-metal <laughs> approaches you know, is, is that uh, whose foot is on the accelerator?
0: No, I agree. Now, that's that's a good point. Right. Namely, sort of the political economy that's shaping this and, you know, who's actually funding this. And it looks like it's a competition basically between Silicon Valley and DARPA, um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes working together, uh, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, and, 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 you know, in this kind of race, you wonder who the good guys are. Maybe DARPA. I don't know. Um, but the thing is, you're absolutely right. And I think one but one problem that we face here in terms of trying to get a kind of. You know, uh, more thoughtful, more normatively oriented control over the situation is to be perfectly honest. uh, I don't think enough people take the situation seriously. So, in other words, there Mm. are still quite a lot of people uh, in the fields that we might broadly call ethics or philosophy or whatever who think all this stuff is just science fiction and it's just going to self-destruct over time. It's just hype. It doesn't matter. You know, don't don't bother with it. There are more important things to worry about. There's quite a lot of people you know, who could be part of this conversation that you want to have, who in a sense opt out at stage one because they don't take it seriously enough. Right.
1: Well, Or the, or people drop out because they take something else very seriously. So, um, for instance, you know, I, I brought up for a moment uh, permaculture yeah. before. And I'm very interested in permaculture because really what they're trying to do is to retrieve lost, uh, lost agricultural technologies. Yep. If you look at an aboriginal culture, they know certain things, that's not just nostalgia, it's not just cool because it's old, but they realize, oh, the acacia trees need mushroom spores in the soil in order for them to communicate and exchange, uh, you know, whatever they exchange, you know, and that if you're using a a Monsanto Western style, uh, isolated uh, uh, monocultural agriculture, you get crap and you ruin your topsoil and all that. So there's a sense and it's probably incorrect, but there's a sense that the transhumanists are thinking, just go Monsanto. If there's a problem with the soil, we'll figure it out later. We'll just pollute it if you have to. We're going to change the genes and grow. So we'll just grow, you know, pollution-resistant corn. Um, and you'd say that's not really, that's not appropriate transhumanism.
0: You know, look, I, I think you're right that there's certainly transhumanists who who, who behave in the way you've just described. Uh, and in fact, I think this is the kind of mentality that leads people like Elon Musk to think, "Oh well, you know, Earth might might we, <laughs> we might spoil Earth, so let's start thinking about how we're going to take over other planets and start all yeah, over." Plan again. B, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. I mean, I, I do think that 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 is kind of where that mentality comes from. It's, it's exactly what you were, have been describing to Monsanto. But of course, transhumanists um, don't have to go down that route. I mean, transhumanists, in a sense. Could be thinking about all of this sort of, uh, you know, lost indigenous knowledge as something that could actually be recovered and incorporated, right? Uh, you know, in the spirit in which transhumanism is is interested in getting knowledge about everything, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it could be part of a great data sweep. You know of uh, now, I don't know if you're going to find that any more attractive when it gets gets into the details, right but but the point is um, that that is entirely possible. And so you know when you think about things like bioprospecting, and here we start to get the intellectual you know so you have companies that actually, as it were, hire anthropologists to go out there to figure out what all those indigenous practices are for purposes of you know patenting and copywriting them and then being able to sort of scale them up in some kind of way. And in that way, they feel they're doing honor to the original indigenous cultures. OK, so that's right. a, that's another kind of and that's been around for a while. You know, I, I don't know where you stand on that, but that's certainly kind of thing a transhumanist would also be interested in.
1: Right. It's just I guess when when I think about it uh, or or hear you talk about it and, and maybe I'm just projecting this onto it. It seems like there's a certain uh, kind of blinders on approach that it's like. Don't look to this, just look forward. Like There's not <laughs> yeah. enough listening going on. I mean, yeah. whether it's, not that the other animals are as smart as people, though some might argue they are, um, but they're saying something. The trees are saying something, the environment saying something. And I know it gets all, you know, new agey mumbo jumbo to think, Oh, let's listen to the planet for a minute. But I don't mean sitting, meditating, listening to the aura of the planet. Although there's people I would, I would argue who could probably do that pretty effectively, but the, this, this sense of humans as superior is dangerous because it, it, it's it's what the native americans would call the wetico disease you know where we're happy to just clear cut a forest because we want to put something there without recognizing that the planet is alive that the that the trees do have an intelligence that we're uh, sort of more treating the the planet like slave labor rather than uh, a
0: a friend yeah no i understand and and uh, but let me let me Partly play devil's advocate uh, by by giving you a kind of transhumanist response, namely, um, maybe what what's going on in your account that's that's problematic is uh, you're assuming that once we get rid of these trees and these species and all the rest of it, they don't come back again. Okay, and 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 in a sense that kind of adds to the horror mm. that you're of what you're you know conjuring up here. But what if we uh, say that in fact that you know we can. Let's say in the case of species, we can de-extinct them, right? We can, you know, by DNA samples that are still around, we can actually resurrect defunct species on on demand, right? So in other words, sure, we can get rid of forests of all kind and get rid of all sorts of trees and animals and all the rest of it, but then we can bring them back. Yeah, if we understood
1: how they relate to the entire ecosystem sure. of which they're Sure. No, no, you're
0: right. Our, our knowledge you know, of DNA is a lot better than the knowledge of the ecology. It's
1: tricky. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the example that comes to mind for me is what happened when um, Clear Channel, a giant corporation, bought up most of the FM dial in mm-hmm. America and replaced local FM stations that were sort of embedded in their local urban cultures with remote computerized, you know, they had some warehouse in New Mexico, and they just broadcast out to everybody their music, until they realized that the ad revenue wasn't growing, and it didn't support their stock or their growth model. And then they wanted to sell all these FM channels back. And people thought, yay, we get FM radio back. But the problem is, the... the ecosystem of of music and expertise and the djs they were all gone the apprenticeships were over so you couldn't recreate that culture anymore so uh, that's part of my concern is uh so we can you know bring back from the amber the the species of spider that we got rid of but uh it
0: doesn't it, it doesn't have its world anymore this is true, but remember, evolution is a dynamic thing. I mean, it's not at all clear that if, you're, if you really take evolution seriously that you should be fetishizing, recreating some kind of past you should imagine that there will be new ecologies that emerge once you reintroduce the species, just as there will be new ecologies even with the species who don't get extinct and resurrected, right? I mean, you know, human beings, all the other species that carry on for millions and billions of years, they're not living under the same ecosystems for that entire time. It's not like the world is a static place normally. No, it's very dynamic, okay? It's just that we're adding adding our own kind of dynamism to it, but the point is there is nothing natural from the standpoint of evolution uh, to think that one should be in the... Business of recreating or maintaining even certain kinds of ecosystems. This seems to me, it's I understand it as a normative idea, but it's a normative idea that actually goes back to a kind of pre-evolutionary way of thinking. Okay. Um, well, a pre-progress. I mean, a more circular indigenous yes, way. You yes, know, if you it, go
1: back to Eliad, who talked about you know the when when we replaced uh, kind of reincarnation. And, and the circular religions with these more progress-based, yes. messianic, future-oriented ones. Yes, but, ones.
0: but the, point, the point I would make is that even the post-humanists are generally evolutionists. And so they're making points about whether human beings are intervening too much in the evolutionary process to actually enable biodiversity to flourish. But if they take their own evolutionary theory seriously, then they can only push that argument so far because change and dynamism is part of what evolution delivers anyway.
1: Yes. But there's a, uh, it's, It's as if you're espousing an alternative transhumanism to what Kurzweil's doing or Google's doing or Elon Musk is talking about or or any of or Monsanto's talking about. So it's as if, yeah, there's the the kind of cyberpunk underground conscious transhumanism that you're talking about would be really cool. But the funding, the stock, the the the. The real sure. effort seems to be something really different.
0: Sure. No, I agree. And this is, I mean, to, to my mind, the, one of the solutions to this is actually to try to popularize this more so that people who are coming at this from different agendas and different political backgrounds and different orientations actually uh, find a stake in this. In other words, that transhumanism isn't just for the rich elites. That transhumanism can be for everyone. Okay, so for example, uh, one of the things, you know, so this is why I would say in the UK, for example, where we have a a national health service, which one of the things it does is it sort of sets certain kinds of standards of what it is to have a decent, healthy living and what sort of... And, and, you know, what 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 kind of public provision will be will be made available to enable people to have that kind of level. Um, And I think that one needs to incorporate kind of transhumanist goals into something like that to make it part of public policy discussion so that everybody. So so there isn't this because I agree with you that at the moment it looks like transhumanism is very much the uh, the sort of uh, the province of the elites. Um, And, and, you know, like in this movie, Elysium, if you remember that movie with Uh Matt Damon, right? I mean, that's kind of what the world, the transhumanism at the moment seems to be conjuring up is something like that. Um, And and I think, no, this is where we need to get public policy interest into this. And so that the the rest of the population actually feels that they have a stake in in transhumanism personally.
1: Because right now, I mean, the acceleration of transhumanism transhumanism 1.0 yeah, if you yeah. will is uh, uh, is a further you know stratification of 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 wealth you know it it it, it it's inequality i mean it, even the kinds of uh, risk taking that that I've heard you talk about in other interviews, you've talked about how, well, uh, there's going to be a new kind of a hero that will be willing to try new medicines or uh, inject new things into their brain as the advanced scouts mm-hmm. of yeah. of a transhumanist movement. I mean, by current standards, those are going to be convicts or, or, or innocent Chinese or political prisoners or just the people who are today poor enough to have to go into the military.
0: No, that's a problem. And I would have thought, from a, from, since we are interested in this, not just as kind of showboating but as science, I think that's actually a problem because you do, you, in a sense, it skews kind of what the results would be. I, I, and beyond the moral issue, there is a scientific right. issue. If, if, you're, you, if you end up having the whole population of people taking risks coming from a certain kind of, range of limited range of groups that aren't necessarily representative of the whole population, then it's not clear that, the, that, that from a scientific standpoint you're going to get good results. So, that from, from, so insofar as we embark on this as a serious public policy, we actually have to prevent exactly what you're talking about from happening.
1: So, mightn't the the establishment of a transhumanist ethos actually slow down the development of technology rather than speed it up? It's possible, yes. I think so. I think so. Because if we don't want to—if we're going to be good scientists, we don't want to overestimate our ability to predict the impact— Of a particular technology, so before we would throw, you know, uh, uh, smartphones into nursery schools, we would say, okay, what actually does this do to the optic nerve? What does it do to the way people understand spatial relationships?
0: No, no, I think you're absolutely right, Uh, and and I think that would lead also to more buy-in because more people would actually be involved in the research, you know, in terms of doing it, in terms of being in the presence of it. You know, I think the thing at the moment, one thing that prevents it at the moment is that, uh, you know, if you really take take this kind of research seriously, it does become very intrusive, very invasive, you know, into into people's lives and the amount of monitoring and surveillance that's necessary to collect the data to see what works, what doesn't work, under what circumstances. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, this kind of research does tend to be uh, used uh, on, tend to be done on people who are captive, basically. Because uh, I, I do think if we really normalize this, we would have to be Quite willing to undergo quite a lot of surveillance I mean I actually think we already are quite willing to undergo a lot of surveillance in everyday life but the point is this would become be made very self-conscious because you'd have to be doing a lot of monitoring like you were saying you know monitoring the optic nerve I mean you know this is pretty serious stuff in terms of data that would be have have to get collected from you
1: right although right now I mean you could say you know Facebook is in that monitoring position yes exactly but oh. they're not doing it to look at what are the long-term, uh, you know, psychological impact they're looking at. What are the, you know, immediate short-term, uh, what can uh, I sell you? Impact. Yeah,
0: no, ex- yeah, exactly. And so my point is if we're, if we're already as it were open to that level of surveillance for something so relatively superficial, why not open ourselves up to that level of surveillance for doing something deep? <laughs> right. Because I mean, and
1: some of us, I, I guess on a voluntary basis with, you know, uh, would be a whole lot better but there is a part of me and i'm sure you would chalk it up um uh to nostalgia but it's actually um it's it it partly has to do with the survival of the species that i'm i'm concerned that we are not as good at this as we think we are and we're ready to continue to implement uh Well, I mean, first there's the whole neoliberal capitalism extractive side of it, that it's very hard to know when we accept the new technology into our lives if it's actually some extension of human ability or if it's just another way for the bad guys to suck more value out of us. I mean, my attention, my coherence, my physicality is Currently, my experience is that it's being compromised by the technologies and improvements I've brought into my life. And my goal is how can I get back to the ground and experience some organic food? And at <laughs> least I know, you know, over there, there's a bit of solace um, and yeah, health. But,
0: uh, OK, but look, I mean, here's the thing, you know, as you're going on with this narrative here. The yeah. thing that that concerns me is actually the way you end up, which is mm-hmm. that, that, that you, you you make it seem as though what one needs to do is somehow escape this. Um, and, and and I'm not sure escaping is really a very constructive way to approach the situation. I think one needs to engage with it and, and to kind of help to shape it because it is kind of open-ended where all of this is going to go. But I do think one thing is that I will have to admit, and, and maybe this is where you and I do fundamentally disagree, uh, we are actually exposing ourselves, and we'll be exposing ourselves to a greater degree of risk, existential risk in terms of you know the way we live and so forth. that is that is part of the bargain, yes. Um, and and uh, but I don't think escaping is kind of the is kind of a, a a constructive way to deal with the matter. In a sense, I can almost uh, let's put it this way. The people who are kind of the Luddites in this, who actually want to, you know, shut this stuff down, you know, if you remember the movie Transcendence with Johnny Depp, you know, those green, Mm -hmm. those green guys who uh, assassinate him and all this. Um, I have a certain kind of grudging respect for people like that because in a sense they're grasping the nettle in their own way. Okay, they're not trying to escape. Right. They're trying to stop it. Uh, the and, uh, well, yes, exactly. The Una- I, <laughs> to a certain point, to a certain extent. Well, you yeah. know, I, re- I don't know if you know, but I wrote a review of his latest book, The Anti-Tech Revolution. I don't uh-huh. know if you've seen that. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, I ta- and, you know, and I take the man pretty seriously. I think this is a, you know, and I think in a sense that the, the, that's you have to const- you have to engage with it directly. I mean, I, I, I'm very much against the idea that you have to somehow escape it and find your own little niche where you can get away from it all in your own way and find the organic food store, you know, in the in, in the in the air raid bomb b- bunker or whatever, I, you know, I, right. I, I don't believe in that kind of a, a of a reality. One has to either, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, have to deal, steer it, embrace it, or, you know, try to stop it. But I feel like so much is getting uh,
1: lost or left behind. I mean, I find and I don't think it's just me. You know, If I go into nature, I experience a different sort of coherence than I do if I stay in the city all the time. If I get off my iPhone for a week, I experience my brain differently. So uh, maybe it's just because I'm in a hinge generation, but I feel like there's a just as there's a complexity to the soil that... Modern Big Agra and Monsanto don't yet understand, and some old lady in India is closer to. I feel like there's uh, a a a social web that has evolved over you know three hundred thousand years that when it's changed uh, or instrumentalized this rapidly, we end up leaving some things behind. Well. I mean yeah. that we might need for coherence in order to treat one another ethically. Even
0: I don't know. I mean, I really think this is. Uh, I think this is a very difficult thing to uh, to, to to kind of resolve. I, I think a lot depends on where actually you are placing the values and which kind of values are non negotiable and which ones you would be willing to trade off for other right. new things. And you know. To be honest with you, I think this kind of a this kind of this feature of our discussion is one that's going to be is going to be dealt with by subsequent generations by the choices they make. Right. Because uh, it's not at all obvious to me that the kinds of things that you want to hold on to will next necessarily be things that the next generation will want to preserve. And they're the ones who will be living on the planet. Uh, Right. I mean,
1: it's part of why I write is to argue for, I know. you know, let's at least, if we're going to leave these things behind, then let's at least know what they are.
0: Yes. You know, I, let's
1: understand that and then do it, do it consciously.
0: I agree. No, you and I are on the same page on this.
1: Now the, the, the concern, I mean, and, and my producer Steven often brings this up is the idea that, that the kinds of technologies you're talking about, the kind of, of you know even uh, appropriate surveillance in order to judge how is this affecting people and all the testing that we'll do it's highly centralized you know these these technological systems seem at an inherently authoritarian level it doesn't feel like I mean when i first got positive about technology partly due to Stuart Brand and the homebrew club and all there was a cyberpunk ethos that was very distributed it felt as if everyone was going to have their own little laptop laboratory at home their their radio shack and tandy tools you know mixed with a heathkit soldering iron and a home chemistry set um but now it feels as if oh so it's facebook and google it's these giant centralized companies that are going to be doing this do you do you see uh, uh this stuff becoming more distributed that or is that is that too dangerous in itself
0: well there are two questions here uh, <laughs> yeah first of all um you're right, Of course, things are centralized in the way you've said with regard to Facebook and Google. but i don't I don't think you should quite give up yet on the sort of DIY approach. Um I mean, especially, well, you must know about this DIY biology, for example, where you mm-hmm. where you have all these people who who typically are kind of, they're, they're, they have hybrid backgrounds in, in engineering, computer science, and biology. And what they do is they, you know, re, re, reverse engineer the genomes of primitive animals and things like this. And they and they are in these various listservs and networks and things uh-huh. where they compare. And- I know. if
1: You could start a, a CRISPR lab. I was talking with some guys from, from California. You could have a couple hundred thousand dollars. You could start a CRISPR lab sure. and start changing your well, genome yeah.
0: and in fact well look I mean you know you know uh, George Church at Harvard uh he wrote this book a couple of years ago ReGenesis uh, you know he's one of the guys who's been in the forefront of trying to get the CRISPR stuff out there and he thinks, he, in his final chapter of that book, he says DIY bio is the future of cutting-edge biological research. It will be distributed. It will be all these various biohackers floating around in networks and so forth, and it'll be important for universities you know, to actually tap into that sort of stuff in order to find out what works, what doesn't work, etc. I mean, that, that, so there, there is that kind of future already being projected there. Um, you know, to what extent can Google and Facebook... You know, kind of encompass it or incorporate it, I don't know, but certainly the d i y ethos is still very much alive, and I think a lot of people are banking on it in doing being the site of a lot of the innovations in the future
1: well here's another thing that keeps me up at night <laughs> um let's why not do it this way um uh it's human anyway so c- can't can't we blame a similar transhumanist thread for so many of our current ills. It, it, isn't transhumanism? Doesn't it dovetail so well with the sort of the colonialism of Western Europe that this is going to be progress? We're going to go out there. We're going to build better boats. We're going to have mines. We're going to have uh, 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 mechanical looms. Um, and that got us uh, uh exploitation of people. It got us thinking of oh, we're not going to think of those creatures as people because we're the humans and they're not. But now we sort of okay. Now we'll let them one them in. Uh, how, I mean, how have the transhumanists solved the problem that the technological transformations that we've undertaken so far risk destroying us? We've, the hurricanes we've created, the, sure. the global warming we're, we're
0: threatened by. Okay. Um, well, let me say this. Um, I think what is true is um, transhumanism is definitely dovetails with um, the sort of scaled up globalized capitalism. That right. that that you have been going after, and um, there's no doubt about it. And in fact, I think uh, when you look at things like transhumanist notions like morphological freedom, which is this freedom to shapeshift, right? Um, th- you know, this is just basically humans thinking of themselves as capital, which is the ultimate shapeshifter, ah. right? According to Marx, that's right. Right. So so in a sense, it is kind of reimagining the human as capital with all of the positive features of capital. Right. That capitalists have talked about and Marx, you know, draw attention to.
1: Right. And there's the and there you've hit the nail on the head of that's my whole friggin thing. So (laughs) it's Marx and McLuhan. Yeah. Right. Uh, Marx and because McLuhan then would argue, yeah, and it's a reversal of figure and ground that we're no longer the figure. Now we're the ground that that's being manipulated by the figure. And is the figure me or is the figure Monsanto and Facebook?
0: So there's there's the core problem. Okay, that's the part I agree with you on. But I do yeah. think that there's a, another side of the issue, because uh, yeah. you were you were also throwing Europe into this, uh, right? And, and 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 I think uh, actually this this does decenter things from Europe a bit. I mean, so for example, one of the things uh, that that pe- people who are interested in expediting this whole transhumanist revolution, one of the things that they worry about uh, in terms of the way our our cultures in the west are organized is that we have these pesky things called institutional review boards that in, that impose things called research ethics okay mm. and this really slows things down and this is very much a euro-american kind of thing they don't have these things in china okay and china is and and you know we have some knowledge of what goes on in china but it's by no means perfect and the chinese are clearly involved in all this stuff too Right, and and so there is a sense in which part of what is happening with transhumanism, and the way in which transhumanism is reshaping capitalism, is that it's really challenging, as it were, the kinds of normative restraints on the Western world that actually, you know, historically had prevented this stuff from going out of control. Uh, But that's that's turning out to be a problem, because insofar as China becomes a stronger scientific and technological player and they are investing in this kind of stuff. And I'll give you one example. Just, you know, um, there's this thing called the Beijing Genomics Institute, which trades on the stock exchanges, BGI. And what they do is that they synthesize the genomes of as many species as possible and then they sell them off. But they have a side project called Cognitive Genomics. And the idea is to actually get people who have 160 plus IQ to volunteer their DNA to be scanned. uh, And then they're going to do all kinds of tests to see if there are some kind of interesting parallels, correlations, whatever, that can then be used potentially for some kind of, you know, gene therapy treatment or whatever to improve the intelligence of people. Okay? Um, This is happening in China. Uh, And and this, you know, from a Western standpoint, this looks perhaps not quite right scientifically in the sense that it's not clear that the science works on this, but also ethically there's a lot of issues, right, in terms of what would be the purpose of doing this. But at the moment, this kind of enterprise trades on the stock exchange is a business in a fairly unregulated sense, at least by Western standards, okay? And so in that respect, this is not necessarily the West dominating this in any univocal fashion, if anything, a lot of the kind of normative restraints that has been part of the Western tradition are being eroded.
1: Right. But it's it still feels like I mean, what feels Western about it is, is that it's still sort of instrumentalizing humans. Sure. And and I don't understand really
0: to what end. You yeah, know, no, I agree. I agree. I think there's an interesting question. This is why guys see Kurzweil is very interesting in this way. Because the thing about the singularity, by fixating on the singularity, it kind of gives you kind of a telos, right? I mean, right. it might be a crazy telos, uh, but 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 it's a telos, it gives you a sense of purpose about where, where we're heading here. Whereas it's true that most of the other kind of, uh, you know, projections of the transhumanist future are kind of just this, you know, endless infinity thing, right? We just live longer, we just be stronger, we just get smarter, right? But to what end, right? You're absolutely right. right. You know, it's just it's just as if we're extending dimensions indefinitely. That seems to be right. very often what transhumanism is about,
1: right? And and for a lot of people, once you do get, hopefully, a person gets to a place where their career and life is sort of sustainable, you say, oh, do I really want to become richer and 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 bigger and more powerful it's like no i want to spend more time with my wife and my kid
0: and uh I don't want superpowers for that. I you're raising a very good point here because one of the things that I am concerned about, if the transhumanists were to become the dominant ideology of society and directing all of our politics and so forth, is to what degree would there be tolerance for people like you? In other words, people who want to get off the longevity bus, right? Who don't want to just be, you know, pushing more and more and more. Uh, transhumanists never think about this. Transhumanists do tend to be uh, of the of the mind that if it were possible. For people to live forever, everyone would want to do it. If, if it were possible to, for people to have indefinitely high IQs, everyone would want to do it. Um, and, and so they never really think that there might actually be, people might actually have quite different, you know, thoughts about how far they would want to go down this route. Right. Or that the or
1: that the health of the human organism, the collective human organism, is actually served by variable IQ levels rather than all intelligence. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Transhumanists do not consider any of this. And I think what this sets the movement up for is for some serious problems of social justice down the road when it comes to have to deal with variation in a population. Right, Because they're having problems with social
1: justice right
0: now. Exactly. (laughs) No, exactly. And the variation is, in a sense, much less. Right. And so no, I agree with you. I think that's a real problem. Transhumanists really do think that the main that 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 the reason why they get pushback from the rest of the population is simply because people don't believe it's possible. But if it were possible, they think everyone would embrace it, and that is false. Right. And there's also I think
1: there's there's an underlying assumption that more human choice over everything is necessarily good. You know, that we are capable of making those choices. And sometimes you want to just let it ride. You know, there's a certain part. Just Let's just see how this goes. Maybe the earth knows something I don't. I mean, and and I don't know that that's all superstition or that's all spirituality. There's a... There's something to be said for, you know, the the sort of the I Ching changes and watching how it goes and mm. looking at the weather as, as, or experiencing reality as something greater than my consciousness.
0: Yeah. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, it is, it would, it would be interesting to see, though, how transhumanists would come to terms with stuff like that. Uh, no,
1: it's true, and 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 it is true. You know, I mean, we get along with dogs, but dogs get along best with us when they know that we're the boss. They get really uncomfortable when you try to let the dog be the chief of your of your pack. You know, yeah. it's, it's. So I understand the idea that humans have a unique role in shepherding uh the the planet or biology or this evolutionary project you know that we do where we're somewhere between the planet's sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. You <laughs> know, and, and that's a funny place. But I don't think we could leave the the parasympathetic behind yeah. completely. There's like messages from it that I I'm, I'm feeling like we're not listening enough to it certainly right now it feels like the project is all right let's restore a little bit of that you know we built up manhattan really nice but now what are the oceans saying what are the fishies saying what is you know what is the plankton saying
0: we just need to develop some algorithms that can conduct surveillance to try to figure out all these what these all these creatures are up to and then get give them their own kind of facebook
1: you would think, but we've got to get we've got to get the plastic, uh, the, the plastic fibers out of their bellies first. Yes, you know, the, no. we, yes. I mean, and, and that's where, you know, the, the part that keeps me up at night is thinking that, well, the, the place where I think transhumanists may be right is that we've created so much damage that the only way out is through. You know, that we can't permaculture ourselves. We may not be able to permaculture ourselves back into a thriving topsoil. We have 30 years of topsoil left. We're not going to change in time. So we better give a lot of money to Monsanto to figure out how to grow kale on the ocean.
0: That might be true. I mean, though, you know, guys like Elon Musk think that if you go down that route, you might as well just start thinking about inhabiting other planets. Which he is. Yeah, I know. I know. That's the point. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean... um, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure how dire things are, okay, when it gets right down to it. I mean, you make it sound like things are really dire. They, I mean, well, I mean, I haven't even
1: watched the new Al Gore movie. Talk to me after <laughs> after I see that. Yeah, well. You know, it's that, I guess, you know, it's funny because we're both, we both celebrate humanity. You know, it's just, I think I'm, I'm.
0: You're pessimistic, man. <laughs>
1: No, I'm I'm pessimistic about humans seeing themselves in isolation from the the systems of which we're a part. You know, that we're so porous that when once you once you excel once you celebrate first your your social porousness that that I do believe that being human is a team sport. It's not an individual thing, something we do together. And with your with your understanding of human self-sacrificing in order to advance the species, you believe the same thing yeah, that we're yeah. a, a team. not that there's an enemy team necessarily, but we're we're a collective. Um but that we're not we're not the only thing going on here and that the planet is trying to support us in ways that we may be ignoring at our At our peril well
0: see I actually do agree that that is true I mean I think I mean I I think it's just a degree of um, the it is to me it seems like it's an issue of how how afraid does one want to uh, be about knowing this (laughs) right other words I am I am I agree with you that there are things probably the planet is telling us that we are not paying sufficient attention to and so I do believe for example we do have global warming and all of that sort of stuff Um, I just think that in terms of how we respond to it, that's the issue, right? And in terms of, you know, how, you know, do we need to pull back entirely uh, from the way we have been operating or whether we can come up with some clever technological fix? I mean, I actually do think, you know, I'm one of these people, and this is where maybe I'm a little Pollyannish by your standards, is uh, that I believe that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and and that there is a sense in which as people get a clearer and clearer sense of the sort of risks and dangers that we're facing with regard to planetary survival, that this will actually unleash quite a lot of innovation, innovative ways of doing things, okay, which may include some of the stuff that you're talking about. Uh, and, and, and And the innovation that I think really needs to be done, to be perfectly honest, is that people have to figure out that there's some money in this. That's the other thing, right? That all these innovations that could possibly save the planet, one of the reasons why they're not being acted on is because nobody thinks there's enough money to make an investment worthy in it.
1: Right, but and, and I would argue that's because we're we're playing on a very tilted landscape anyway. That the only money system they understand is sort of VC and corporate capitalism, and that there are other money systems that would encourage sustainable outcomes rather than just
0: these. Uh, yeah, actually, you, uh, you unicorn. Uh, you, you do have some interesting things to say about that. Actually, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that's a line you ought to be pushing more. I, I no, yeah, because yeah, it's in one of your books. I would, I, yeah. Yeah, this last, this last one, this
1: throwing rocks at the Google bus book. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so even if I, if I am going to get on board with the with a, a a loving version of the transhumanist project, um, I would certainly uh, my main job would be to convince young innovative people that there are paths. To our, to success that don't necessarily involve uh, in joining up with one of these behemoth uh, extractive uh, companies that will necessarily turn your transhumanist goal towards the 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 project of corporate capitalism rather than human betterment.
0: No, that sounds good. I agree with that. All right.
1: All right. Yeah. So you gotta you can be head of the. <laughs> propaganda ministry there you go
0: <laughs> For, one of my aspirations yes
1: it's good. well well i mean i think you want to you do want to promote a kinder gentler more conscious less automatic form of transhumanism you know now we're in a kind of unconscious transhumanist drive or fear driven or greed driven mm-hmm. um you know because people are afraid of plants and girls and all the stuff that you know what i mean it's this is freaking crazy white male uh, uh uh society that's driving uh the majority of this right now cool well you're on team human yes <laughs> well i do love you steve fuller well thank I you i love you I too i think you're smart and 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 crazy and fun well thank you and same uh, same yeah. the same to you <laughs> <laughs> you've been on team human our guest today was social epistemologist and author of humanity 2.0 professor stephen fuller we'll be back in the media squat next week with new strategies for taking back reality from the machines this show was produced and engineered by stephen bartolome
0: hello team human listeners stephen here thanks again for tuning in this week a special thanks and shout out to our good friend Luke Robert Mason from Virtual Futures Podcast. Luke recorded Professor Fuller's side of the conversation in the UK. Thanks Luke. Also if you enjoyed this episode, check out Team Human episode 53, a panel discussion featuring Professor Fuller, Douglas Rushkoff, Martin Rothblatt, Dan O'Hara, and IBM Watson researcher Michael Karasik. We're super close to achieving our initial Patreon goal. Thanks to all of our supporters and to everyone on Slack. You can also support Team Human by going to our show notes, clicking the link, and reviewing Team Human in iTunes. Your review helps spread the word and helps us find the others. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And
1: I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.